This recording was brought to you by Media One Audio Visual. To learn more about us, visit us online at mediaoneaudio.com. All right, we're going to get started. <laughs> okay, um, hi everybody. Um, my name is Kevin Arnold. I'm uh, moderating this panel here today on um, what is it? Recommendations and discovery. And uh, as, as it happens here, they just give you a title and a really sort of wide th set of things to talk about for, uh, for an hour. And so we're going to do that. Um, I'm going to, we'll start off with the uh, sort of customary, brief, non-self-promotional, uh, obligatory uh, uh, introductions uh, down the line here. And then just go ahead and dig in. Um, I already told you my name. I'm the founder and CEO of IOTA, uh, independent content distributor. And um, I'm interested in hearing all these guys' thoughts about recommendation discovery, uh, especially from the standpoint of uh, helping independent artists sell content. Um, to my left is uh, Mr. David Hyman from MOG. How you guys doing? So uh, you want a little intro? Yes, give all us right. 30 or 60 all seconds. Right. I think you get 30 <coughs> and Dave's gonna, Gabe is going to get 60 seconds. <laughs> Gabe gets 60. Work that out beforehand. I'll take 65. Thanks. Um, so... For those of you unfamiliar with MOG, it is a cloud-based music subscription service available here in the United States. Um, music lovers pay $4.99 a month for web only or $9.99 a month, including mobile, to get all-you-can-eat music from the cloud. Um, we've got about 10 million songs now, apps for iPhone, Android, um, Blackberry Summit coming soon. Uh, recently announced a partnership with uh, BMW and Mini for car and Samsung, LG, and Vizio where Mog will be available through your flat screen TV. Very cool. And um, we are very focused on music discovery. At the end of the day, it's the music discovery tools that differentiate us from our competitors. All right, well, let's hear more about all your discovery efforts in a second. Um, Hey guys, my name's uh, Adam Powers. I'm uh, Vice President of Technology for Rovi. Uh, it used to be that I have to introduce Rovi, but it seems like people are starting to get familiar with who we are now. Uh, we started off as Macrovision, uh, doing content protection for VHS tapes. The, the wonderful market that that is, we decided to get out of it. Uh, so now we've done about $5 billion worth of acquisitions over the last four or five years. Uh, bought TV Guide, bought AMG, bought Muse, bought uh, Media Unbound, and a number of other companies. And really what we've become over the last few years is kind of the intel inside of the entertainment industry. So working behind the scenes in music, working behind the scenes in uh, production, DVD production, uh, broadcast television, all the different pieces, all the way from studios and labels through distribution channels like Comcast, uh, CE products like Sony and Samsung, kind of enabling the, the uh, distribution of content enabling the user interfaces and consumption of content. So we have about uh, probably close to half a billion devices worldwide now that are actually using our, our software and our metadata uh, on them uh, as of today. Thanks. Okay, uh, next, David from The Filter. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Um, I'm David Mal Roberts, uh, CEO of The Filter. Uh, it's a personalization engine for digital media backed by Peter Gabriel, so that's a good thing in this sort of audience, hopefully. Um, and we have been going for about six years. We moved from a consumer play where we had um, pre-Apple Genius, we had a music playlist generation within iTunes, etc. And we've moved into providing all the good stuff we've created directly to digital media companies or telcos. Um, we have a network now through our clients of about 200 million users. 
Um, half of that comes from Dailymotion, one of our customers, uh, but we also provide um, services for the likes of Voodoo, um, Warner Brothers, uh, Nokia, and we've just done a deal actually with um, Fuhu and Foxconn to take us on to um, their new tablets that are coming out in the autumn, which, uh, which is going to be a huge deal for us because it goes across media uh, and across devices. It's not just about music, it's about understanding the full person uh, from, mu from music to video, games, apps, etc. All right, thank you, Jim and Slacker. Hi, I'm Jim Cady. I'm CEO of Slacker. And uh, so uh, without going into a, 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 a diatribe of what we do, we do personal radio on every major mobile platform. Uh, we operate in the United States and Canada. And uh, we have uh, about 25 million listeners. Um, so we are the professionally curated radio um, content that's, that's available in the marketplace both on a free basis as well as a, as a paid basis. All right, and Gabe from TuneUp. Gabe Adiv, I'm the CEO and founder of TuneUp Media. Um, we are the number one plugin for iTunes with about four million registered users. Um, sort of known in the market as uh, offering utilities to the end user for their iTunes collection. Uh, primary utility features are clean cover art and deduper to help you sort of curate your own music collection. Uh, we're also expanding into sort of the enhanced content play. Um, and have recently relaunched some infotainment features, uh, one of which is called Tuniverse, um, which is allowing us to delve further into the, uh, the world of, of recommendations, both in things like um, actual content recommendations, but concert tickets, merchandise, etc. All right, thanks guys. Um, so I wanna a little bit sort of define the scope of what we're talking about and sort of look historically uh, at at recommendation and the role it sort of played with music uh, over over time, right? So, I mean, from my standpoint, we're in a, in a pretty interesting and exciting new time. I think we've thrown a lot of stuff up against the wall over the last decade or more, the last, I guess, 15 years or so. And uh, I want to look at some of those specific models, see what's effective, and, and sort of go from there off of some of these points. So, um, you know, we were sort of talking before the panel about the earliest days of, of music discovery online and people sort of pushing things at you, um, all the way back to uh, IUMA, the Internet Underground Music Archive. Dave uh, brought up as probably the first thing several of us thought about. Um, Spinner was there very early on in the days, and, and then we got a little bit more um, more adventurous into uh, things like Mood Logic. Um, uh, certainly, Lastifin and Scrobbler were, were big things here. Andy, maybe you can sort of talk a little bit about uh, about some of these companies and, and models, I guess, uh, from a from a from a Rovi perspective, um, and you know, maybe also talk a little bit about what comprises Rovi because you guys have, you know, certainly one of the first companies that, that I learned about that was providing data or or information to help these websites operate um, back in the day. Uh, Sure. So, so I think everyone likes to talk about discovery and navigation and recommendations as if it's some new thing. But uh, Rovi is as the the DNA of all the different companies that we've bought. We've been doing it for about sixty years now. Uh, think about navigation and discovery back in the days of when television first came out, and it was go get your TV Guide magazine, right? And that was how you actually figured out what's available for the next week, what's going to be interesting to you, uh, what you should watch, and when you should tune in. I think that, that that same sort of thing applies to our AMG business, which used to do the magazines in the front of the Tower Records store of, hey, here's the new releases, here's all of uh, all of the Peter Gabriel uh, records or whatever it was at the time. And, and I think that that's kind of the DNA 
that's kind of carried over in our company. Uh, we've had this business for so long now that we're still in the mode where we go out and buy or get shipped to us every single CD that comes out to the street and a few weeks before it hits street. And, and we have something like 400 editorial staff that actually type in all the information about every single one of those uh, CDs that's coming out. So. Uh, for our music business in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, we have all the AMG crew that take the, the, the album, they type in a description of it, is it a, a good album, is it a bad album, do the reviews, uh, type in everything about the artists, uh, cross-reference it, here's who it was inspired by, who's, uh, who it inspired, who's, uh, here's a little biography of all the artists on it. And it's really all that data that really drives recommendations. And one of the reasons why we went out and uh, acquired uh, uh, Media Unbound uh, a few years ago was because we really saw that the next next generation of, of recommendations obviously isn't going to be uh, magazine driven, uh, which is coincidentally also why we no longer own the uh, TV Guide magazine anymore. Uh, pa paper is dying, so everyone's going to digital devices for recommendations now. And it's no longer about uh, what does the editor recommend to you, but it's all the different ways that you can get uh, recommendations, all the different uh, uh, types of data that feed into it, and even all the different types of recommendations. If you like this song, you might like th that song. If your friends like this song, you might like this song. Uh, and it's, it's really kind of a complex uh, uh, ecosystem, a lot more than it used to be, in the sense that we used to have one guy that would say, oh, I think someone might like this. And now it's, uh, we have to figure out all the different ways of getting content in front of people and making sure it's the, the right content in front of people. And we spend a lot of time thinking about that these days. So in a, I, I think your role is maybe changing over time, right? Where you guys were at first collecting and organizing the data, adding some editorial remarks to it, but not necessarily serving it up or connecting people um, with, with new things they might like based on that data. Um, David, how is how is uh, how does that description sort of fit with what you guys do and uh, in your business at the filter? Yeah, well, I, I think recommendations. Yeah, it's been around for a long time. Certainly, as a feature, we'll probably all remember. We all use Amazon's people who bought this also bought that, which is very much the beginning of uh, of recommendation. But um, we believe in media and music specifically because it's such a um, it's such a personal thing, which is very dependent on mood and a whole bunch of other other issues that that to go deeper in terms of discovery and recommendation and playlist building, um, you need a whole bunch of layers um, from understanding how all the metadata is connected, you know, when, where, where Rovi are fantastic at, at, at also having a layer potentially which is either kicked off by your friends, you know, I'm sure a lot of you have have started a discovery process by clicking on a tweet or a blip FM thing that, that might have come through from a friend, or whether it's the authoritative DJs and experts that help whether they help build genome you know, with Pandora or they help uh, actually run some of the curated radio stations. And I think, I believe the discovery process is all of those things together. You certainly won't get me being religious about algorithms and AI. However, the step change for, 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 for me when we go from recommendations is it's no longer about a feature that sits on the right-hand part of the page that says, whilst you're listening to this or watching this, you might also like. I think that is, that is of the past. I know that's in most places, but for me, that is of the past. Every, you know, the, the, the shift, I guess, it, that's required is every single piece of that service, so that UI, needs to be relevant to me at this particular point in time, on this particular day um, of the week, I guess, in this location, on this device, with, with these people I'm surrounded by. And, and for us at The Filter, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be able to overlay, in, 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 for anybody who's fans of 
of using the word graph a lot. We're trying to overlay the uh, object graph with the personal taste graph and then filter it down according to these context points of time of day, day of week, location, device, language. And we don't believe that's the complete answer, by the way, but at that point you get to such a high level of granularity that the relevance score goes really high and you, you're more likely to deliver something that will delight the individual at that point. So that's what we're trying to do. Um, I've got to say that 50% of our customers still use our bread and butter recommendations feature as opposed to the, this juicy stuff that's coming along, but we're starting to see some real, um, some real apps that are using many relevance points, and, and the conversion rates are very high once you do use highly relevant um, data like that. So you're saying your, your customers in the services that you, you sell your products to, right? So do they track which, which types of recommendation services or models, I guess, are most effective to their users? Do yep. you? Yeah, well, we track for them. We A-B test or A-B-C-D test um, pretty much every aspect of the algorithms. Uh, and we also test when we, um, you know, we turn up or down um, the inputs into the algorithms. So, you know, there's certain services that are highly social where the fact that somebody's shared a link is a very valuable piece of data. And you might turn that weighting up into the algorithm because you're in a very social environment. In others, actually, where it's very authoritative, you might actually um, turn up the connections that come from star ratings from an authoritative source, maybe. Um, so you, you play around with those, and we measure all of those differences, so you can actually work out if you if you mess around with that or tune it, as my guys would call it, um, you you know whether you get better results or not. I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned A/B testing because that kind of brings to mind the, the other aspect of recommendations, which is sometimes it's used for uh, commerce and sometimes it's used for uh, entertainment, right? So sometimes your, your recommendations are driving, hey, is this a, a purchase that I want to make? And you can measure that and say, do people buy more? Do people buy less? And I think other times there's a much more subjective element to, to uh, recommendations, which is driving radio stations like Slacker, where mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's not necessarily, did it create a better playlist or not? It's, it's, did people actually stick around for it? And I think that's a much harder thing to uh, measure in terms of the success, measures, yeah. Yeah, success of the, the algorithm. Right, okay, so you two guys who are providing data and uh, recommendation services um, to a whole bunch of companies, including potentially these other two guys that, that flank you, Jim and David, I guess I want to ask uh, uh, both of you sort of how you guys maybe, how your thinking about recommendation has evolved from, well, either within your existing businesses right now or even previously, right? So, uh, um, Slacker came out of, of Music Match, which was one of the, the very uh, early players and services online. And David, you've had quite a bit of time around this world at Gracenode and stuff before Mog. Um, would uh, one of you guys like to take this one a run? Sure. <clears throat> so, you know, when we started building Mog, we did a massive research initiative in what people wanted from an all-you-can-eat on-demand music service. and. Um, it was incredibly illuminating to me because what we learned was not me as a music consumer. We, we learned how important passive listening is <laughs> for people. Um, hence the massive popularity of things like Slacker and, and Pandora. Um, people are generally inherently lazy and a lot of people don't want to have to think about what it is that they want to play. Um, so we were really the first kind of on-demand service that really did everything we could to build radio without restrictions. Mm -hmm. Once the consumer's paying for on-demand, you can give them radio that things like Pandora can't touch. So for example, artist-only radio. The ability to see the queue, jump to anywhere in the queue, 
or save a song from the radio to your favorites that you can access anytime on demand. Um, we developed a, our own technology. There's a slider in MOG. So when you're listening to the radio and you're playing the Rolling Stones radio, it'll play just the Rolling Stones. And when you want to introduce similar artists, you move a slider over to the right and it starts to populate the queue with similar artists. That technology was an algorithm that we developed that took a really long time. It takes in a lot of data feeds, some of them from companies in this room. Um, Echo Nest is a, is a data partner. GraceNote is a data partner. We've got data from Last.fm as well as our own user data. Mm -hmm. And we're assigning all of these different technologies a signal. So you guys license some of these services? And, and we roll, and roll this data. You, you just want to get as much data as you can. And then we've kind of fine-tuned this algorithm by assigning them different weights in kind of a meta-algorithm. How do you... But, go ahead. You know, what we really try to do is provide multiple levels of engagement, where the first dance you do with Mog can be as passive as something le like Pandora, but let you seamlessly move from passive to, an, to active in a way that nothing's provided before. Um, you, can, you can, of course, listen to anything on demand when you want, but the ability to be listening to the radio and a song comes on that you like, and there's a button right there that says, play this album right now, the ability to move from that passive mode to active is kind of unprecedented and we think pretty awesome. Do you see, I don't know if you have a ways to benchmark this uh, across other services, I yeah. do think it's pretty unique, right? But how much jumping from totally passive into active uh, is there? Well, the slider is that, like so. the most used feature on Mog. We have tons of social discovery features. We, you can. You can search all user-created playlists. You can see other people's profile pages. But it's all about how we display these in the UI so that my mom can come to the homepage, type in Celine Dion, and when she's feeling really wild, she can move the slider. Um, <laughs> um, Sounds but, like a you know, fun party. People like me, you know, we kind of skip over those things sure. and dive into the more powerful features like the social features that require a little more time, but provide a lot more power for the people who are willing to invest. So one of, however, I guess I got to imagine one of the, the barriers you've got there is you've got to license a fully on-demand service to provide that radio product, whereas a lot of other products come to market with the radio product based off the, the DMCA rights and, and try and build added features off of that, which maybe is a, a, a fair characterization of, uh, of how Slacker approaches the, the business, how do you? It's, it, it's a little bit different. And, 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 it, and I want to distinguish one thing that's, that's important for us, right? Um, there is a difference between a playlist and a radio station. Um, and we don't have enough time to walk through it. But um, there is something different than what, what we do versus building a playlist. There's a lot of services out there that call themselves radio that uh, really end up being a playlist um, generation tool. And, and there's a variety of things that we take into account with regards to discovery. One of those is you know, collaborative filtering. We have billions and billions of plays that we're able to be able to um, align appropriately. And I, but I also don't think there's any one way, I would agree with everybody down the line, right, that there's no one way of being able to provide the right recommendation for customers. So we, we have a partnership with Rovi, we use Rovi data, we use our own data, um, and then also um, a variety of other um, pieces of data that we use in which to be able to create recommendations for customers. Um, another thing we do, which is a little bit different um, than, than most everybody, is we actually have um, professional DJs that work for us 
that actually put very deep stations, as many as 1,500 tracks deep, um, in a specific um, area of expertise that they may have. And we get a lot of our plays initially from there because people really want to start with something that's been professionally created by something that somebody that knows that genre. And then um, we approach it a little bit uh, differently than David does. We have a little bit different control than, than, they, than they do. But it allows the customer to be able to skip or be able to ban an artist or ban a song or whatever. So they can now begin to form that you know, very deep station um, in a little bit more granular level. So we use a variety of tools um, from a variety of partners as well as our own data as well. Do you mind, do you mind breaking that down a little bit? I don't know if that's proprietary or not for you guys. I mean, I, I'm interested in, in having uh, people understand the sort of back-end service providers that help all this sort of magic that becomes radio stations or recommendations come out the front. If not, that's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, like I say, you know, Rovi's a public one. We have some other ones that aren't necessarily public, uh, public information. Um, we do have enough listeners, you know, with 25 million listeners and billions of plays, we can collect a lot of our own data and be able to generate that. I should point out we well. use Rovi too. <laughs> we use Rovi. So, I, I appreciate the love. <laughs> uh, among so among the let's put it a, a, an abstracted way, right? So among those different um, models, right? I think some people will come up with just sort of similar artist recommendations. Some people will will help you with uh, perhaps bringing in more robust collaborative filtering uh, and working out social components. Are there in, in today's environment, do you think that there are some of these that carry more value or weight for, uh, for a fan to have accurate discovery? Um, in particular, I guess I'm wondering, is, is the, social, does the social capabilities of, of, uh, of uh, the, the ecosystem right now change things for you? Um, it, it does. I think the challenge, if, if you can intelligently use the community, it's a good thing, right? But, um, you know, th there's a lot of people that are in the community that, that have perspectives that me as a new listener to a new type of content that it wouldn't be interesting to me. So that's a, one of our biggest challenges is making sure that, you know, that we can leverage the community to a positive aspect um, versus necessarily taking recommendations from somebody that's never really had a lot of experience or doesn't have a lot of listening depth in a specific area. This might sound, uh, you know, controversial in this room because there's a lot of people doing a lot of different things, but a lot of the research that we did told us that people generally prefer the man-to-machine relationship than the man-to-man -man relationship. Now, 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 okay. uh, uh, you know. Where do we go with that one? <laughs> to each your own, I suppose, uh, David. San Francisco, guys, let's yeah. be open-minded. What's that conference that goes on during CES, that other oh, one? Uh, I, I have no Tell idea. me more about man-to-machine. But, you know, you know, Pandora, is essentially a man-to-machine relationship. There's, there's not a whole lot of social discovery that goes on. And a lot of it has to do with time. People just don't want to invest the time. I believe that social features, in a lot of ways, are more powerful. They just require, often, more time. And, you know, you got to have friends. But also, as, <laughs> Which as everybody doesn't always have or, or necessarily want to discover music from their friends. Yeah, I but mean, you know, we One we of all the things I love about Scrobbler um, is, you know, you're often finding music from people who have similar tastes, not necessarily who are your friends in the physical world. Sure. 
And, and let's let's face it that you don't have similar tastes as your friends. Everyone likes to think, oh, uh, my friends have the same taste in music as me. Or even look at your, your Facebook graph, who's on your, your Facebook graph that you relate to, your coworkers, your parents, your brothers and sisters, your social crowd. Some of your social crowd may or may not have the same taste in music, but let me tell you, I do not have the same taste in music as my mother. Uh, she's, she's a classical musician, and I don't want to listen to any of that stuff. So Yeah, but I mean, there, there, there can be one wall in between sort of the the people you know and people who listen to music to you, I feel like they're sort of uh, overlapped. We, we do spend a lot of time investing uh, at, at least in, into those friendships that we choose as opposed to the ones that, uh, that we're stuck with, right? Um, to pull stuff out of that, I think it, uh, it but you're, what you're saying in, in a sense is that it's not powerful enough on its own, right? And so if I can just call out, um, well, a competitor, but another company, right? RDO is entirely based around that social experience, one of which you're choosing who to link up, and I can certainly, you know, my mom doesn't need to know about that. Um, is 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 there the feeling that that experience offers more value, or I guess in the end you're saying is no, it's no better than just like whatever's on my hard drive. I'm gonna I'm gonna. Well, Mog has those social listen to, features, so. and we have full Facebook Connect integration. We just choose to bring forward the recommendation components that require less work first. Mm. And it's like peeling layers of an onion. As you dive in deeper, you can find those social relationships. We just think for a lot of users, they want to click play. And they want recommendations. And they want passive listening. And um, you know, part of the challenge of bringing those social features so to the forefront is um, a lot of times you're constantly reminded that your friend doesn't necessarily use the service maybe hasn't used it in six months and you keep seeing the same sure, sure, sure. things that they played three to six months ago the last time they used it. And so those things can get stale and they're very, um, they're not necessarily reliable. I yeah. think that the, um, you know, the whole so the social aspect, if it's very successful, you actually get too much noise. So you need a filter to be able to pull out the things from all of your social connections that are relevant to you at the right time. And as you just said, David, if they're not if they're not that successful, they end up being stale. So I, I think that the social aspect's a great start point, and and we probably all had a great recommendation from a friend. But in your compared to how many other times you just want to press play and and get delighted with a radio station or with a playlist that's generated based on a whole bunch of data, that's really uh, that's where the, the the majority of the use cases are. I think I think that. There, social is one aspect of recommendations. I think that you have collaborative filtering and social and uh, fast Fourier transforms on your music and all this other crazy stuff that you can do. And, and when I was going out and doing the shopping for figuring out how we're going to buy our way into the, the search and recommendation space, it was interesting to see 250 different companies that thought that they all had recommendations nailed. And every one of them said, oh, we do peer-to-peer -peer recommendations. We do collaborative filtering. We do uh, any any number of other things and it's I think one of the reasons why we ended up where we did was we didn't really see it as there was any one solution I think it's you have to combine all of them and it's a different solution for a different use case every time around and I think that that's a, from a recommendations perspective you really have to look at it for, in terms of a platform how do you combine artificial intelligence and social graph and uh, human curated uh, recommendations and actually turning them into something that actually means something to people. And I think it even varies from device to device, right? It, yep. it matters if you're on a cell phone or a set-top box. Yeah, we, I, I want to dig into that in a second. I mean, we spoke about the, the, the sort of quality of recommendations and how you gauge success there. How, I, I'm interested in how you guys from sort of the, the provider standpoint as well as the, the customer, how do, you, how do you know really what's working? Well, we, we 
pretty much test um, every iteration of the algorithms through um, different engagement metrics. Um, I mean, are these human user testings? Adam, well, you you start with the subjective, which is which is um, actually just having a look to see if it makes sense. But then very quickly, I mean, that's very dangerous in the music business to go into just a, a small group of people deciding whether it's right or wrong. Right, we you all have, you. have millions of people tell you exactly. thumbs up or so down. So you're much right? better off going in objectively and saying, well, what are we trying to achieve here? Um, is it an increase of time spent on a specific channel or, or is it an increase in streams per visit or is it an increase in in um, uh, sending a link to a friend. I and mean, there's a whole bunch of engagement metrics that you can measure. And, and we inherently, the, the, the obvious ones are number of streams, amount of time spent on the service, the amount of clicks around a piece of navigation, though that can be positive and negative, depending. Um, and there's a fourth one that's, that's completely uh, gone from my mind. And um, well, I guess it's a download. Um, and we use those to measure um, basically whether it makes sense or not or whether it works or not and whether you can optimize and that's you know to be honest that the way we do business is we do trials with people we a b test what they currently have and we're very confident about our business because we go in and we frequently um, do that over a two to four week period and then we we win the business so because it delivers higher engagement so um, it's, it's interesting that like in order for you to gauge your success you you, you have to you dependent on some user action yet at the same time you're trying to in many senses create a passive experience or an experience that's supposed to meet the needs of what you've determined is a pretty passive listener um, you know do you expect them to be coming back I mean is the goal really to take them out of passive state all the time and have them interact with your site or your service no because time spent on service could be passive I mean you, you can spend like instead of 10 minutes 20 minutes, you can spend so 30 minutes. So, you know, it, 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 there's different metrics for the Dave and Jim, do you guys want people clicking on your tools and your apps or you just want them to listen forever? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, the, the more people interact, the stickier the, the customer experience gets, right? So, obviously, they're getting something out of it if they interact with it more. So, you know, with... And, and you know, I, I concur with what was previously said. I mean, we have, we have hundreds of millions um, of interactions and so we get a, you know, we get a feeling for how much time people, you know, spend listening and how much time they're very active leaning forward. But we have, you know, it's equally important for us to have somebody that's a lean back listener that just, you know, picks a direction and lets it play and enjoys the content, right? So Do you think both those, those things conflict at all or? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, at the end of the day, if people, if the less they clicked, I think the happier I would be. It means <laughs> I'm serving them. I mean, right now, we know average subscribers listening to music on MOG 42 hours a month, on average 19 out of 30 days. Um, you know, from what I can gather from the Pandora S1, it's about 4x kind of the average usage on Pandora. Um, but, but those are the kind of metrics that matter the most to me. Um, but to your question, you know, we, we pull in 9,000 blog posts a week for editorial content. Um, you know, we make it really easy to Find people who have the same taste as music as you, add them as a trusted source, and build your, build your own taste filter where you could go back to your feed and see what your trusted sources are doing musically. And as much as I love them and they're, and they're, they're awesome, they're not used nearly as much as things like editor's picks, right, right. <laughs> new releases. Um, even our new browse area is used a lot more than those kind of more, those cooler features just browsing by genre where we're doing um, editors reviews of hundreds of albums a week that's kind of like I don't know if you guys remember hear music you know we tried to replicate a version of hear music mm -hmm. inside of mod where you're getting very brief editorial descriptions of things we think are great 
cool. So I want to I want to loop Gabe into the conversation here a little bit. Okay, <laughs> okay down there. Okay. So, uh, um, and I'm going to do it in the context of sort of where people get their discovery, right? So we talked about this a little bit, and and you know, in both these cases, we're talking about. Um, we're talking about internet music apps. Uh, I want you to talk a little bit about how this might fit into your world, um, and then I want to encourage other people to sort of uh, talk about how, whether it is a desktop application or, or um, a portable device or a television in a, a living room, how uh, those opportunities are coming to play. Sure. Um, you know, I, um, you know, despite having not spoken much thus far, um, you know, clearly, um, absolutely listening to what you know these experts have to say as far as you know cloud consumption model and that can be defined a million different ways that can be radio that can be paid subscription that could be passive listening that can be active listening i'm extremely confident and will hold fast to the fact that all of these experiences absolutely have to coexist with the the locally stored music experience um i think that music is one of those things that you know people clearly have a very intimate relationship with and the notion of the personal music collection that you actually own and sits on your computer and or external hard drive is not going anywhere. So for me the challenge is to figure out how uh, the services that we're bringing to the table can play best with services that uh, companies like Mog are doing such a good job with despite Dave talking a little bit over there. That I can see. <laughs> um, <laughs> He said, the, um, he said, I'll give him that. At this point, I just <laughs> feel it before I even look over there, right? Um, so it's, um, it's interesting. Um, it's challenging. It's fun. I think that there's a lot of cool stuff that some of the big players are doing right now in regards to being able to access your personal locally stored music collection from anywhere. Clearly, Amazon has just jumped right in. Um, you know, all this talk about Google and Apple and everybody else, and Amazon basically jumped in and said, yeah, we're here, and uh, kind of nailed it. Um, it's really difficult to be able to effectively access your collection from anywhere if you don't know what the hell's in your collection. So we see ourselves as an integral part in that ecosystem. Ultimately, I think that the, the data that we're bringing to the table could be extremely valuable for all the gentlemen sitting here to my right. In other words, if you know what's in people's collections, what they listened to yesterday, um, what they've listened to historically, what they cleaned up, you know, across the board, um, there's a lot of valuable data that, that we're sitting with. Here. So you're selling user data? We're not selling anything <laughs> yet, but we're willing to talk, Kevin. <laughs> and thank you for including me. <laughs> Feel free to jump in on any of this I stuff. I will. So, uh, I mean, part of the, maybe there's, certainly there's interesting data and activity going on there um, that should come into the into the system on the desktop is is there really anything unique or different about how music people are discover uh, about how people are discovering music on on phones or, or using an application through an alternate to PC interface or do the same sort of goals apply I, I think it's different from platform to platform not only in terms of uh, user interface and a cell phone can re return three results on a screen, a PC can return a hundred results on a screen and so you have to kind of fine-tune what sorts of results actually get returned out of an algorithm at the end of the day and make sure that they're relevant. But I think there's also uh, the location aspect of it, whether you're sitting at home in your family room or if you're sitting in your car or sitting on an airplane, there's perhaps different uh, uh, ways of fine-tuning algorithms and making sure that you're giving people the right music at the right time. Yeah, so much of it has to do with platform. The, the, the user interfaces that we've designed for, for the car 
and for flat screen TV are very different than the website. We really put a huge emphasis on the passive listening and the browsing. Um, you know, if you've ever tried to peck in letters on your TV, um, it's a nightmare. And it's a nightmare to do it while you're driving. Um, so we really you know, are investing a lot of our internal engineering resources on improving the passive listening algorithms and making them better and better and ensuring people that they're getting an experience that they can't get from free radio service. Um, and, and that goes for mobile too. Mobile, you're not going to get the same kind of thing that you get from the desktop. So, I mean, certainly the, you're talking sort of a lot about the user experience challenges, I think, across those different platforms, which are certainly there. But what about opportunities that come out of those places, those places whether living room or certainly from a mobile device standpoint, um, I mean, there's already Sound Tracker and some other location sort of based discovery or recommendation type systems. Do, do you think those have legs? Is that is that a, an important feature that you'd want to incorporate into your products that might be in a car or something like that? I mean, the, the mobile aspect definitely brings the location to the to the party, and um, and in terms of the data, I'm thinking straight away. And you know, we we've, we've been working. I don't think. Um, by ourselves, but we've been working with Songkick um, and um, manufacturers of, of mobile devices to, to combine the taste profiles of individuals based on what they listen to, with their location, with with Songkick data, so you can recommend um, concerts they're most likely mathematically to like. Doesn't sound very cool mathematically. Um, <laughs> Based on based on all, those, all the relevant data. Now that's not possible without the location element. You know that wouldn't be possible, um, really, with 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 the PC because um, I, I don't know about in the US, the US but in the UK, um, because of the way the IP addresses uh, work, I'm actually perceived to be living in Leeds when I'm living in Bath, and that's that's probably not a big distance in US terms, but it is in the <laughs> UK, right? So I wouldn't go to any. And the place in, in, in Leeds, but I think I think that the the location part of it changes, and that combined with um, control mechanisms and screen sizes do do bring different discovery um, problems and challenges and, and solutions um, to Do, the table. Does anybody look at trends with regard to you know ag aggregate user data over certain regions where you might be able to identify that you know? People in the British countryside like this type of music, or uh, you know, other other sort of regional or, music, or trends. even short-term trends like Michael Jackson just died, and suddenly so. everyone's very interested in Michael Jackson, right? Suddenly it's it's very relevant. I think trends are definitely one of the the big hot topics for recommendations going forward. I don't think anyone's quite done it right, but I think that there's a, a lot of things that can be done right there, and a lot of research that can go into it. Is anybody interested in in the like discovery thing where you walk into the random cafe and hear what everybody's listening to uh, around you? I love that idea. <laughs> now, we've talked about that a lot. I just think it's really far down the food chain for us. We've got yeah. so many bigger fish to fry right now. But um, you know, I love the idea of people tagging a song with a geolocation and being able to go to that specific region and see what all the tags are, or what people are listening to that in that specific region. I think is an incredibly powerful. Cool. I think that the challenge for a lot of folks, as I've seen it, is separating the, uh, the science projects from real revenue streams. Um, there's lots of really cool stuff that we can do with all this stuff, but the question is, you know, where are people making money here? And, you know, this notion of selling concert tickets based on where, you know, people are living and listening to um, is extremely powerful as far as revenue goes. Um, I'm also confident that there's a certain threshold of good enough for any of these algorithms or services that are brought to the table, 
And unless you are a super, super, super sophisticated music consumer, um, you're not really going to be able to tell a whole hell of a lot of difference from a lot of these you know, services that are out there. So I think the big opportunity is for these folks that have gained traction in the marketplace to be able to effectively monetize their existing user base above and beyond coming up with you know, the silver bullet for recommendations and things like monetizing concert tickets and, you know, and the rest of these sort of merchandising opportunities. I think, I think monetization really comes from scale across a number of platforms as well. I think that if you're just doing collaborative filtering on one person's website or on your, your local movie critic website or whatever it is, sure, that's, that's useful for you, but it's not until you actually start doing millions of devices that are all look very different, set-top boxes Absolutely. and mobile phones and things like that. That's really where companies can start generating revenue from recommendations. I think that's also where a lot of the tailoring and a lot of the work in recommendations uh, goes on is making sure that you have it nailed across every one of those platforms. Just one thing I'd like, I wanted to add, sorry, sure. in terms of discovery that we haven't mentioned at all. I just realized, we should have said this when we were preparing, but it's only just come to me that um, one of the biggest areas of discovery is, is, is music video, um, and Vivo and, and the like. And YouTube, yeah. And, yeah, and, and, and you know, it's, it's, it, it goes completely off the scale in terms of the number of views. Um, and that's an interesting aspect when you start working out how to discover music, you know, fairly passively, I guess. You, get, you, you just go in and you see what's hot and then you sit back and, uh, and, and, and get, get what used to be MTV, um, basically for yourself. So that, that's, a whole, that's a whole new area. And that brings in um, the living room in a big way because, yep. um, you know, Vivo HD, or, or it also brings in, you know, the, I don't know if any of you have used the Vivo um, iPad app, but it's fantastic in terms of the quality of what you get there. Uh, and that, that's an interesting aspect of how the, um, the mass market, how the mainstream is actually consuming music. Um, and it is very much through video, which is a lot harder to, I can do, say through experience, a lot harder to build discovery tools around video than it is around music. I mean, the Facebook news feed should not be looked lightly upon either, right? Where it's sort of, you know, the analog recommendations, where your yeah. friends are constantly posting, you know, and curating their own YouTube recommendations. Yeah, but Gabe, half the stuff you post in my feed <laughs> sucks. <laughs> well, I'm clearly totally you have to work on your taste of music so. because <laughs> the... Gabe uh, posts about 50 links a day, so you get kind of burned out. Not everybody likes uh, covers of Betty Davis Eyes <laughs> with a company dancing, but a lot do. <laughs> and while David's thumbs up might not quickly appear on my page, um, my mom's does, and uh, so do a few of my friends. All right, I, I, think, I think those are all good points. I mean, there's, there's a lot of other outlets, discovery-wise, we, we haven't touched on as well, including things like uh, Shazam and Soundhound and what role those play throughout all of this. Um, but before we uh, open for questions here, and I really don't know how long we're going to go, because I think we're starting late, um, I want to... I want to just sort of come back in, in maybe some degree of, of, of summary. It's like, I think in my mind, the, the question all along about recommendation in particular as it drives this discovery is, is, is been one of like human versus algorithm and, and um, the, the editorial, uh, the editorial component and, and having a, a identifiable human voice as opposed to uh, an algorithm spitting out a bunch of, of stuff at you and, and tuning and tuning and tuning over and over again until it gets more refined. Um, I, I think that they, from what we're talking about here today, is that they're both very important and, and taking the best out of both of them is the, is the right thing. I wonder if, uh, especially for the services, but for everybody involved, uh, how you guys have tried to balance those and, and if you still have a, a very strong dedication to the, the more traditional editorial voice um, or if there's, you know, there's been 
uh, you know, there's plenty of examples of human-driven and, and technology-driven sort of sites and, and recommenders out there. Uh, how does it shake down today? Uh, obviously, we come very strongly from the human background. We have 400 editorial staff in, in uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan that actually sit there and type in uh, metadata about music all day, every day. And they type in uh, reviews, they type in moods, themes, tones, uh, ha relationships between metadata, who it influenced, who it was influenced by, similar artists, all those sorts of things. And that's, that's actually great. You actually get a really good experience from the editorial aspect of things but it just doesn't scale. And I think that's really why we're moving past uh, editorial as their sole for, for of uh, recommendations to a combination of both editorial and uh, uh, algorithmically driven recommendations. And I think that that plays on, on the other side as well. So uh, David talks a little bit about uh, A-B measurement and business metrics driving uh, how you actually know if you're doing a good job on, on delivering your recommendations. I think that's a piece of it, the, the algorithms uh, business algorithms can tell you if you're doing a good job on your recommendations, but I think you also need a human element there. Uh, and it's not, you can only have humans or you can only have business metrics. You need a, a combination of the two. Uh, and, and actually having a human sit down and say, this is a good list of recommendations, this makes sense to me as someone who's looking at it, and someone that's uh, deeply an expert in the space uh, goes a long ways. Uh, and I think that uh, you actually have to have that human QA to, to your uh, recommendations list at the end. So how much is enough humans? I mean, Pandora is famous, of course, for the Genome Project, having a bunch of people reviewing music. You've got hundreds, thousands of blogs. You've got dozens, at least, radio programmers. I mean, there's different things. There, you could have a couple of experts fine-tuning an algorithm. <laughs> um, and our algorithm works across all 10 million songs that we have versus you know things like Pandora that have only gotten to 800,000 songs where they have to have every somebody listening to every single song. Um, but no, humans, humans matter. We matter. <laughs> at, at, really the end, at the end of the day, this is all recommendations and discovery is very a human-centric task. If you were to actually sit down and think about what the perfect recommendation is, it's someone that knows you intimately as a person, knows every single piece of music that's out there in the world, and is able to make a connection between those two things. And able to say, I know that you like this piece of music, and I know that you like this piece of music, and I know you're, given your mood right now, this is what you would like. And I think that's where the human aspect really comes into it. Machines don't have that human aspect, and we all like to think, oh, uh, AI and flying cars are just another 10 years away, and we're just about to nail it. But uh, for the time being, it really does take that human intelligence to make a, a quality recommendation. The only thing I'd add is, is I, I completely agree with that, by the way, but sometimes when you have a rapidly growing global businesses that a lot of them do have, and they're, they're tackling, you know, these companies tackle China or India or, or you know, the different countries that make up Europe have incredibly different ideas of what music goes with what, and I can I can say that from being half French, um, because what you know what goes with Morrissey in France is pretty much everything. Um, <laughs> so, uh, um, but but so the, the key point, uh, and to take take it to Abe's good enough uh, point, is that you you do as a business, you sometimes have to go beyond the complete perfection of bringing the human element in because it will not scale. You know, if you suddenly bring in the whole of the Bollywood um, uh, library of content, you know, it's going to take you an age to actually bring the human angle to it. So you're better off taking what, what David talked about as maybe one or two experts from that area to fine tune an algorithm because that will get you much faster to market. Um, and maybe there's a way of then doing a deal with Roe v. India or a, or a local supplier of content so that you can start bringing those two things together again. Uh, but I think that the, the algorithmic uh, machine part of it will make your product move faster internationally. 
for future reference, uh, Rovi India is actually Rovi uh, Tata. Oh, <laughs> Tata. Ta. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so I got to break in. For Go one ahead. Second, yeah. Right? So, so um, you know, we we use machines and we use humans, right? Um, and I, I can tell you, I guess from my experience, I'm not doing away with the humans, right? I have you know 65 or 70 people that are experts in specific areas that know what's new, that know what album came out yesterday, that know what band played last night and knows what's going to be, you know, kind of interesting to people a week from today, right? Um, and it's very difficult for the machines to do that. We have a very sophisticated um, system um, that is built upon hundreds of servers that does that mashing. And that's one part of it. But I also can't say enough that, that there is a human element to this, right? It isn't machines recommending things as an exclusive way of getting good content out to the listener. And, and humans can do the top, I don't know, 3%, 10%, whatever, very well. So when someone comes in and says, I like Britney Spears, you can say, oh, if you like Britney Spears, here's the, the Jessica Simpson album that you might have missed or whoever's replacing Britney Spears next week and actually have some thought that it's been put into that. And if you have someone that comes in there and says, oh, I like Emma then you can actually say, oh, well, that's a little bit more obscure. Maybe we'll apply some uh, algorithms to that and figure out a, a better way to, to drive recommendations around that. Yeah. At the genre level, it seems like people are doing a better job than algorithms. Uh, um, but humans can't program a station for every single artist. Yeah. Um, so have both. Have a lot of, you'd have to have a lot of people. All right. So... We're going to go to questions now, and we're going to try and shove as many as we can because um, I was thinking we'd have a little bit of extra time, yet I just got a five-minute notice, which was the first one I got. So, um, Bryce, why don't you uh, find the biggest visible open hands? Hi, Chris Rigatuso of Skyfollow Consulting Group. My, my question is, uh, you've all talked quite well about the, the demand side, consumer, of uh, discovery, right? What does a consumer consume? What about the supply side? What about the thousands or tens of thousands of independent bands that have no label? They want to be discovered, which is the flip side of the same channel. Do you guys have a business model, or do you recommend some other company that has one? We, we definitely have a business model around that. And I think that's when people are talking about uh, machine algorithms for uh, exposing artists, I think that's really why they're talking about that, is how do you actually get to that long tail of artists? Everyone knows the top 100 bands and, and the Billboard charts, but how do you actually find your, your local band and things like that? So it's definitely something we've spent a lot of time uh, figuring out. And, and we actually do have data that covers a lot of the local bands and things like that. I would hope that we cover uh, the majority of artists out there. But if we don't, uh, hopefully that's where a lot of algorithms will make up for our, our lack of metadata. And, and we also have we also have partners um, like Hello Music that, that do that for us and feed us content in that regard. So. Yeah, I mean, now that Mog's got, you know, TuneCore, where, you know, really um, small artists who, who haven't been e even big enough to make it onto this guy's, uh, you know, indie aggregator company um, are in the system. And, you know, it's a real challenge. I think artists need to kind of do their own marketing to get them up to a certain noise level where we can then have those relationships, which we're pulling in from third-party uh, data feeds like Echo Nest and like Grace Note, but you, you've got to kind of do your own thing to get to a threshold. Well, you got to make some noise so somebody can hear you. Yeah. So, All right, next. Uh, one question regarding connectivity of different kinds of uh, media or radio, especially when we look into the car, Jim or, or David, uh, people still listen to FM or HD radio, and we've seen things like iTunes tagging in the past. 
uh, to buy content later on. Uh, but how about like personal radio stations? When I listen to a song on FM and I want to add it to my mock service or to my to my Slacker radio, uh, do you think this will be technical feasible, or where are the main hurdles for that, or is it something you're not looking into at all? I don't think we're we're personally not looking at ways to bridge kind of FM radio to to us and 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 connect those two pieces. Um, but you know the car is a huge focus for us, and I think that you know in the next three to five years you're going to see IP-based services completely replace other forms of um, music in the car. Um, the timing is really good. Um, you know, there's a bunch of car companies working on IP-based platforms. Mu uh, the car is where 50% of music consumption happens, and so. Um, You know, the value that people are getting today from services like Satellite for $12.95 a month for 150 radio stations is going to be really challenged um, when services like Mog and Slacker and Pandora come to the car. I, I would echo a lot of that. I think the automotive industry is finally at that tipping point in terms of actually understanding FM is uh, last year's technology and the future is all uh, IP-based. And Detroit Telematics shows that in four weeks or so, we're going to have a strong presence there because we see that as a key platform going forward. Uh, and I think that part of that is because LTE is rolling out now. So before they didn't have the connectivity, they didn't have the, the network. But now you see automotive manufacturers saying IP is going to be in all their, their new models and start in the high end, work their way down. And I think that radio is the, the banner level feature that they really want to put in cars to, to drive the value proposition around connectivity. So I think that's a really good question. So just a couple quick, quick uh, kind of add-ons to that. I would agree, right, that that you know IP is going to be a, have a significant play in, in the car and already is, right. So all that work is already underway. And I think they've also, I think the automobile industry has also recognized that they're very slow to design in, right. So I think they're allowing that to be very flexible in how it happens. So I think you're going to see it. I agree with David. I think you're going to see it progress very, very quickly. Um, and it's going to be a number of different ways. I think one of the challenges that we have and um, is making sure that that we deliver the audio experience that's required for each case right so in other words the audio experience that's required on a mobile phone is not the same as what it is is an automobile right and many automobiles you have you know great sound systems and, and a great listening environment so those are going to be challenges for us to to deal with those moving forward so that we can maximize you know the listening experience for those consumers all right I had David Marlin. So you guys never talked about bias, and I'm really curious about how bias fits in and the disclosure of bias. Obviously, in recommendations, it's not just David's Betty Davis-sized bias, that, but it's the bias of like payola in the past with radios. You guys all have these relationships with uh, music labels. Um, you're talking about indie bands wanting to get up and get through and. Gabe was is selling user data down there, and we, how does bias? We're not selling user data. Yeah, just so we're yeah. clear. But your up does not sell user data. Yeah, kidding, of course. But how does bias play a role in your recommendation engines? And what about the disclosure of those biases? Obviously, in some instances, like David Roberts was saying, geolocating bias would be great because I'm in Leeds and I want to know who's playing live at Leeds, and that's great. You're going to sell me a ticket, but. What about when I'm just listening to the Rolling Stones and now you're in a biased way saying, hey, listen to this, and you're getting some kickback from it or you've got some deal or whatever. How does bias and disclosure play out in these recommendation engines? 
Uh, are you asking about industry bias, or are you asking about I'm business? I'm talking about bias for you. So in other words, because I love Joni Mitchell, that no matter what you put in, I give you Joni Mitchell back. <laughs> I love Joni Mitchell. I don't think that any of the companies are up, up here to the Google size yet where we have to go out and put out policies of we aren't going to skew things in this way or that way. And, and let me tell you from a Roby perspective, we think about things from a user first perspective. So if we don't actually deliver the right recommendations to users, that's actually going to be damaging to our business. So while we have people come to us and say, oh, can we pay to bump up this uh, metric? Can we pay to bump ourselves up in that search term? It, it would be horrible if we did something like that because it would actually uh, decrease our value to consumers and, and ultimately decrease our business value to everyone across the entire ecosystem. It sounds like a luxury problem. The day a label comes to me offering me money to influence my <laughs> result set, I'll know I've made it. Um, but, you know, it's interesting when GoTo.com came out, it was all pay to play, right? And there's a lot of value in that. I mean, I, I could see a place in the, in the music ecosystem where the whole stations, based on how much somebody's willing to pay to get it on, and um, it could be interesting. That's how go to. That's how overture, you know, eventually became overture. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, there are some radio services that people that offer products to artists to pay to be inserted into streams of like artists and whatnot for some amount of time. But apparently, uh, and I probably probably shouldn't name any names there. But, not uh, not uh, us. Yeah, it, it seems We're like a bigger problem uh, there. So I'm not sure if they're going to cut me off, but I'll let you uh, go for it. Yeah, where's the pitchfork of automated recommendations? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the one, one thing that people always forget about media is media is partially what you like and partially what media says about you. And I think that's where the you, what you don't like part of it comes in is I would never sit up on the stage and say I like Britney Spears because of what it says about me as a person, regardless of whether or not I have every single album back in my house. And I think, I think that there's a lot of uh, social filtering that goes on at that level. Yeah, we do find that the implicit and explicit data, um, both, you know, the, the, the negative implicit data, so um, somebody's skipping, uh, doesn't actually mean they don't like it, by the way, that's the dangerous, you, it just, it's not right for that particular time um, and place. Um, but that's, that's, that's really important data that, that you've got to use as well. Um, and it's something that, that, that the machines are actually pretty good at doing, um, working out um, whether, whether, whether the weightings of certain negative um, thumbs down or clear or whatever what, what that comes through that you do have to use it well we find, we use it absolutely you want a last word there Dave we're gonna wrap it up take it David nope. Nope. all right we're done thanks everybody <laughs> thanks guys